Momentum Volleyball is the online Canadian hub for volleyball storytelling, reporting, and event coverage, allowing content creators to connect with fans, coaches, and players. Momentum is the hub for athletes, coaches, and fans to find free and paid volleyball content, and we are proud to be the voice of Canadian volleyball around the world. Head to MomentumVolleyball.ca to subscribe for free and get access to exclusive content and all your Canadian volleyball updates. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. Really excited for today's guest. He's been name-dropped a couple times. I'm not even sure if he's aware of it, but uh, he's been talked about on our show, and it'll be good for him to get some stories. So today's guest is a two-time Canada West gold medalist and a three-time Canada West silver medalist. He's won two U Sports championships and one silver medal. He's represented Canada at our FTC and at the Pan Am Cup. And what might be the most impressive feat is he's been with the same professional club since 2017, playing for Lunenburg in Germany. Please welcome to the show, Tyler Kozlowski. TK, thanks for doing this, man. Yeah, glad to be here. Thanks, So, TK, uh, like I said, you've been talked about on the show a little bit, I think just because of the amount of Trinity guys or eSports guys we've had on the show, but just for our listeners who aren't familiar with your career, uh, growing up in that Abbotsford area, what was it like uh, growing up in terms of other sports, or did you kind of choose volleyball as your thing right from the start? No, yeah. Um, actually, funny story or interesting part about my story is I didn't really, really start playing volleyball until around the 12th grade. I was a baseball player. From about the age of four or five, I was hitting balls with my dad in the backyard and played, and then got pretty good at that and played volleyball kind of just for fun. When I was younger, through middle school and high school, I was playing volleyball as a setter. But yeah, definitely, definitely had my my share of volleyball experience well through the younger ages. But that was kind of just cross training. And then in between eleventh and twelfth grade, I had just been a part of the, the national championship winning team with Team Baseball. Then Ben Joe reached out to my parents uh, kind of secretly without me knowing and kind of laid out the going to Trinity after high school. And my parents were kind of blindsided by that, thinking like, what? He's a setter. He's tiny. Can't block. What are you talking to us for? And then he kind of laid out the possibility of me transitioning to libero, learning how to receive. I had a pretty good defensive ability in one in high school. Not the greatest quality of volleyball, but still could make make some reads, make some make some digs. And I think Ben had the idea that I could kind of be the second setter out there with guys like Adam Schreimer. It was pretty nice to have me out there in the back court, maybe like six meters from the from the net. I was able to kind of be the second setter out there, and that really played into my strength. So, yeah, that's so cool to hear about. Did you ever follow up with Ben Joe just to? kind of see what his thoughts were what he saw in you because as you mentioned like he may have saw you play at the high school level which is uh, lack of a better term not the highest level sometimes compared to maybe club or in that Abbotsford area they were always hosting national championships it felt like when we were growing up but uh yeah I'm curious did you ever kind of ask Benjo like hey when you kind of pulled me from baseball what did you really see in me being a libero because I've never played that position before well Ben Ben's pretty how would you say it Ben like, has a good mind about volleyball and doesn't only think in terms of volleyball. So when he was talking to me originally about transitioning from baseball to volleyball, he used so many like crossover terms like, okay, this is like catching a pop fly. This is like fielding, fielding a ground ball. So Ben, I think, had a pretty extensive background in playing baseball when he was younger. So it was really cool for him to, to cross over between baseball and volleyball to bring me in. And I think at the beginning, he literally just told me like, yeah, TK, your competitor, we like how fiery you are on the court. 
obviously you have a good feel for the game, not really having much training and still being competitive. So I think it was kind of just a risk because at that point he had Jared Offren playing, he had John Weeb on the team as another libero, and I think he just kind of risked it to see like, hey, <laughs> I don't know if this is going to work or not, but let's let's see if we can do it. And what was it like when you when you entered the gym at Trinity? Because I think I have my timeline correctly. You would have entered right when like the Ball, JBD, uh, Houdson, Rudy, Nick, uh, Steve Marshall, like all those guys were there. So not only were you making a jump to university volleyball, but maybe on one of the best university volleyball teams of all time. So what was your first impression of being in the gym with those guys? Well, first of all, I got lit up. <laughs> I couldn't receive for the first while. Rudy's float serves. Um, I don't know how it's like Steve Marshall ripping spin serves at me, trying to play defense, just terrified. So the first while I was pretty scared, pretty intimidated. And then to add to the intimidation, we went, I think, one month into preseason, we went to the club world championships. I didn't dress, so that was probably a good thing. Um, but I was there to see Trentino and Ceci and Zenit Kazan. We had the chance of meeting with Reed Pretty in between matches, and he talked with us about kind of the expectations of playing pro overseas and kind of just like asking us who had interest and yeah, how, how we imagine ourselves getting there and then kind of just like filling in the blanks for us. That was really cool and motivating to see a guy that yeah seemed like a normal human off the court and then on the court was an absolute monster and a superhero to a lot of us. So that was cool to meet with him and um yeah he also mentioned a little bit of like the integrating christianity and volleyball so fresh trinity guys that was pretty cool to see that there are guys like that at the highest level even and not just in university um and then yeah leaving that tournament coming back definitely had an like a yeah increased fire for getting better seeing volleyball at such a high level and yeah from there it just kind of took off i obviously played I think one or two sets that whole season um so I had no expectation on me but just to get better and then was yeah really good in in that year with me obviously not needing to coach those guys so much they were so good and so experienced he could really in training at least give me a lot of attention and guys like Rudy and guys like Steve Marshall took me under their wings so I, I think I had the best <laughs> the best um group of like teammates and coaches that you could imagine and obviously with a school like Trinity Lake, there is going to be some some faith-based programming there. But I'm wondering, is that something the team always anchors to? And the reason I bring that up is I think I remember that year correctly. Like somebody was shooting like a mini documentary around the club championships. And I think it was Mark Houtson went down with an ankle injury. And they showed Benjo talking to the team. And he just mentioned like this, this must be something that's part of the plan. And the team was able to regroup and gain their focus where uh, other teams at that time, if their best outside goes down, like obviously there might be a little bit of panic. So I'm curious. Is that something that's talked about openly or is it just because everybody is there and they have a, a faith background that it's just something that's not talked about, but everybody can anchor to it? Uh, yeah, I, would, I think that's a good way to put it. It's definitely, it's definitely that anchor, um, but it is definitely talked about openly. I mean, each training, we start training by saying a prayer and just kind of lifting up the training session. And I think it's, yeah, this uniting factor for a lot of the guys on the team and yeah, I mean, part of God's plan, for sure. It's not always the, what you imagine would happen in your life. I know Mark definitely didn't think that he would go down with an ankle injury when he was at his absolute best. But yeah, from there, he was still able to make a comeback and win 
win another championship and play. He came and started in that in that uh, national championship in Queens. He actually got the ankle injury when they were in Russia when I was in the 12th grade. So I wasn't there for that exactly. But um, yeah, I think that's something really cool and special about the team culture at Trinity is yeah this uh, this aspect of faith and playing for the guy on the left and for your right and really celebrating your teammates' success and I think. In turn, that actually often lifts your own your own um, performance and your own success. So it's a cool aspect that I really really appreciated being a part of. And our results uh, openly talked about, it. and the reason I bring it up is you're a competitive guy. And looking back at your career, you played in a Canada West final every year. You played university volleyball. You've got three U Sports national medals. Like you've played in three national finals. Like, is that something you guys talk about as a goal every single year? Is like to get the banner, like to get a gold medal, or are you guys more of a process driven thing? Like, how do you like to think of it as an athlete? Um, at the beginning of every season, we had. Yeah, very um, um, structured goal setting, and we would write down some goals and use them as uh, kind of this like lighthouse goal, if you will. So not something that um, you definitely need to like look back at always, but just kind of this lighthouse goal that's going to guide you through the season and something that you can see in the distance. So I think that was really cool and motivating. Um, yeah, I mean, from the time I was at Trinity, it's the results kind of were yeah, expected. We talked a lot about having a target on our backs and about other teams always trying to perform their best against us. So I don't know if we openly talked about the results like always, but we for sure had the goals and I don't know if you would call them expectations, but to, to do well. So it's definitely a part of the, the team culture, team process at Trinity. And one year I wanted to dive into, because I've gotten Shrimer's perspective, and we just had uh, Slater on the show when he got his perspective, was the year uh, at McMaster where you beat Alberta in the semi, and then you go on to to win the final with, lack of a better term, I've been calling it kind of a faulty offense, but it was cool to hear Slater's impression where, yeah, everybody in the gym knew that him and Blake were going to get a ton of volume, but he was really impressed with just the depth of the team and everybody kind of buying into a role. And not even a role is like, you're going to go in and serve and get us a dig or like the guys on the court. He mentioned even guys at practice like... Kern knew he wasn't going to get a ton of volume in games, but in practice, he was there to light guys up. He was there to battle that everybody kind of got it top to bottom. And I'm curious what your impressions were that year where you guys didn't have the hottest start, but then you kind of catch fire in the second semester and it starts building, starts building. And all of a sudden you're national champions with the two guys scoring 30 points a game and everybody else chipping in where they can. Yeah, I think Slater hit the nail on the head there. Um, it was definitely an interesting year with, yeah, I think, what did we finish? Sixth or seventh in the regular season. And then we matched up against the Dinos and lost the first game of the quarterfinals. And we were, yeah, at the brink of elimination. And I think that was when everyone just kind of banded together and said, like, hey, we have nothing to lose. Let's just pour it all out. And, yeah, I mean, I would say that Ben preaches that everyone has a specific role always. And maybe that year was just the, like, the perfect example of that where you have guys like Carter Bergen was the the second libero borderline could have played over me for a lot of that season. It, it wasn't my greatest season first half. And um, also guys like Mark Antoniak, he was another libero that played at Trinity. Those guys played a huge role coming in, passing substitutions, serving substitutions. We had a pretty cool system where sometimes Carter would come in and play defense in five. I would play defense in one. 
and set out of the back row a little bit and yeah, turn in training, just lighting us up with serving and attacking, giving us the best training we can get. And I mean, guys like Aaron Betcher running the step around when we weren't running the e-ball very much to keep the block honest. And yeah, then you got guys like Blake and Slater that are just, yeah, all right, guys, we're going to feed you the ball. <laughs> every high ball is going to go to position four. Almost every in-system ball is going to go bicker four. And let's just see how it goes. And uh, we, I guess we peaked at the right time, if that's what you can call it. But we definitely banded together. And we really accepted the, the structure, the, the system that we wanted to play. And everyone, everyone bought in and seemed to work at the right time. And, yeah, all of a sudden we became... Canada West and national champions that year. And some of our listeners might just be nodding their head and being like, oh yeah, you win Canada West, like you have a really serious chance of winning nationals. And, and absolutely you do, but it's not unusual to have the Canada West winner not do well at nationals or vice versa. Like I think there's been years where you guys didn't take it down, where you win a national championship or even the UBC year, I think they finished third in Canada West and then uh, just marched to a national title. So I'm curious how do you guys kind of regroup from the regular season to nationals? Because one doesn't guarantee the other where, like you said, you were maybe sixth or seventh in the standings. Then you get obviously qualified for nationals and win it. But like I said, it's not unusual to kind of be the second or third team in Canada West and then win a national championship. So how are you guys constantly regrouping and just kind of keeping track of what the draw is going to look like at nationals and how you can still get it done? Yeah, I mean, like I said before, we always have these goal-setting meetings at the start of the season where we talked about Canada West and the CIS and U Sports Championship being kind of independent of each other. So it's kind of like once you knock the one thing off your checklist, which I had the fortune, uh, the fortune of doing a few times, um, then you try to regroup. But I also had the misfortune, or I don't know, the the unfortunate, um, the unfortunate circumstances of winning the Canada West championship and then losing in the quarterfinals so there's always the possibility of having this big success and celebrating it but then realizing that the job isn't done and yeah sometimes it works out for you like it did in my fifth year and sometimes it doesn't like it did in my second and third year for both those years we did had success I can't remember I believe we won the Canada West championship one of those years and the other year we lost but then both those years we lost to the Western and the CAS quarterfinals so there's always the possibility of it of it not turning out, but sometimes you, yeah, sometimes you regroup after some success and then you you ball out again and <laughs> see how it goes. And I'm curious with you being such a competitive guy, how do you consider like rivalries? And the reason I bring it up is uh, the, the year you guys won with uh, Slater and Blake and all those guys at McMaster, I was lucky to sit in like the first row uh, and watch against Alberta. And Alberta was rolling that year with, I, I think they just came off back-to-back national championships and they had Walsh and they had Gorenson and Riley Barnes and Reed May and all these guys. And it, it was just an interesting like people watching uh, thing with they're barking at the net and they're talking through the net and they're really intense and kind of outgoing where you guys stayed within yourselves. You didn't really engage in that stuff, but I could tell you were being competitive. You know what I mean? So what's it like in those environments yeah. where you got big John Gorenson, like a 6'6", 200-pounder barking through the net, and you guys don't want to say anything back or you don't want to engage him, but you're still fighting and competing in a different way? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, those guys had big success. I think the years I was talking about with the national championships uh, in Laval and the national championships in Calgary, I'm pretty sure that they were pretty successful in both of those in both those national championships and they had a specific style of how they wanted to play and sometimes it's better to stay within the style that you know you play best at rather than to engage and for some teams 
it actually makes them better when you engage with them. For example, um, in the Bundesliga, there's a team that we know and talk about every time we play against them. When you engage with them, you're actually helping them. So to not engage with them is kind of a strategy. So and I, I in that season, Alberta lit us up the first half. I think both games at the LEC, we lost 3-0, 3-0. And then we had a really solid game against them in Alberta or in Edmonton in the Canada West semifinals, beat them 3-0. And I think after that, we just realized, hey, guys, if we stick with our style of play, not engaging with them, not not yeah, adapting to how they want us to play, but rather staying to how we know we play best, then you can you can have a lot of success. And I think that's what we did. And then just jumping ahead a little bit in your career, uh, after university, you go to FTC. And I'm curious, uh, was that a choice for your development? Was that a choice just what was going to be uh, uh, best get learning the pro game? Like, did you have any pro offers to go after your fifth year university? Or you thought FTC was the, the clear favorite of what was going to be best for you? I think at that time, I knew that if I wanted to play national team, it was the smarter choice to go to FTC. But I also was at the same time pursuing to go straight to pro. I was I was seeking out. I unfortunately didn't get any agents to sign with me um, before FTC. So then I was doing it kind of through connections with guys like Rudy Verhoof and American libero Dustin Watton. He was connecting me with his first pro team in Finland. Yeah, like I said, unfortunately, nothing nothing panned out agent-wise or contract-wise. I had a few little emails, but I wouldn't call them offers. Um, so then I kind of knew that if I wanted my volleyball career to continue, I kind of had no choice but to go to FTC. Um, at that time, I was pretty um, motivated and optimistic with the national team, so I knew that was also a strategic decision for me to keep my pro career alive, but also to keep my name in the in the list of the national team was to go to FTC. And your FTC year, if I have my timeline correctly, was a pretty interesting year where there was you and, and I think Brooks Adore was there, like guys who had life experience and, and gone through university. And then you had some absolute puppies there with, I think Elser was still in high school the year he went to FTC. Uh, I think Shawan was there. And obviously, uh, Shawan went early to the national team. Like, what was that dynamic like where there was, like I said, guys who have been through university and are a little bit older and then guys who are kind of technically in the 12th grade when they're training with the national team? Yeah, it was really interesting. Like Jesse was Jesse was there. He was going to high school part time at some sort of little like boarding school. There were a lot of hockey players. What is that? The OHL or the the yeah that 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 league of hockey. There were some players there at Jesse's high school. Um, and then guys like Shawan and guys like CJ Gavlet, so younger guys. And then you had guys like Chris Voss was there the first half, and Jordan Orr was there the first half. Um, Andrew McWilliams, older older dude, just coming out of Mount Royal with me and Brooksador and Mike Tomlinson and uh, Ontario native Josh Edwards in the middle. So like we had a very like yeah very random group. It was pretty difficult because we only had one middle at one point. So um, Arthur Schwartz was also there and he was training as a left side for the first half. And then when we went to our France tour, he actually had to play middle just so that we could even play. <laughs> and same with Jim Bell. He was training as an opposite, um, and he had experience. Both of them obviously had experience as middles, but in order for us to play against the French teams, those guys had to play certain games as their train or as their uh, pursuit position, so with left side and for opposite for those two guys, and then other games they had to play middle just so that we could just so we could play. Um, it also is interesting going from Trinity where you have 
a, a program where team culture and like identity is talked about so often to them going to FTC where guys are just trying to get better. It's not to say it's selfish, but it's just such a different vibe where you're talking about like, like I said before, play for the guys on on your left and right. Like, don't just think about yourself, but train and and compete for your team. And then at FTC, it was just a completely different vibe where guys are literally just there to play volleyball. There is nothing else that you're doing at FTC. So it was a it was a very interesting year for me. That's for sure. Yeah, like how do you find yourself in those situations where there are other guys fighting for contracts or fighting for position time? Like, would you compete with Jordan? Would you guys be on good terms where you could have dinner together? Like, what's it like when you know you're you're in a professional environment, but there's only so many contracts and there's only so many spots on the national team, especially a position like libero, where it's kind of like a a goalie, right? Like you kind of, if you have three goalies, you have no goalies. You kind of need to know you have one and you're kind of the guy, right? So what's it like training in an environment where Mm -hmm. you want to push each other, but you know, you're also fighting for maybe that one look that an agent's going to have. Yeah, it's funny. We were actually roommates, so we definitely had lots of dinner together. Um, um, but yeah, Jordan and I had a pretty cool, a pretty cool story history together. We played at the uh, provincial team together for a few years, going to the Canada Games and going to uh, what was it called, NTCC or NTTC, the, the the tournament that was for the junior national team uh, roster. We were on those teams together, so. We had a long history of competing against and with each other, and I think he and I have a great relationship. He played in Durham for one season when I was at Lunenburg, and enjoyed seeing him for those games. And yeah, I think that we obviously knew what was what was at stake, and that we were both fighting for the same same spot. But at the same time, we were able to yeah really stay close and hang out and shoot the breeze, talk about our hobbies, our passions, and I have a really great relationship. I'm. I haven't seen him for a few years, but I'm really excited to see him the next time uh, that's possible. Nice. And whenever team culture comes up on the show, I'm always kind of interested to get the behind the scenes or maybe get a story out of some guys. And uh, so the Trinity guys have definitely explained some cool experiences where Lepke was big on like the 20 mile march. Uh, or Pierce kind of talked about like if you have this meter of where you're like super serious or you're the other end of the spectrum, like super silly. He kind of mentioned his team was pretty neutral, but more on the silly side, I think, when things got intense and under pressure, where that's where they wanted to perform best. And th- that was something that was talked about where it was okay to kind of have joy and be in a good mood when you're playing. So uh, I'm curious with you being a, a culture guy, when you left Trinity, was there any story that from Benjo that you anchored to or anything that you thought was going to help you later on in your career that, like I said, was just a cool culture thing that you really identified with? Yeah. I mean, those guys all mentioned really great themes that Ben, that Ben preached throughout the year. I mean, the, the point of March was definitely a big one. And um, uh, in my first season, I think it was, Clear eyes, full heart, can't lose. Um, something, something along those lines. But something that really stuck with me, and that I've even had the opportunity to talk with my pro coach Stefan Huebner about a lot, is this idea of choosing joy and playing with this like joyful competitiveness. Because, I mean, it's funny that I say that because I've been through many, many, many different phases of how I play volleyball. Then nicknamed me the angry elf while I was at Trinity often because I was just angry and small so that just kind of stuck and that was even mentioned on my senior night at Trinity so I mean I I, I to play with joy sometimes you just get caught in the moment and get pretty angry or whatever but I think that for me personally I play the best when I have aspects this, this feeling of joy and I think 
when Slater and I went from Trinity to Lunarburg, that was like the first thing we talked about because we had heard that with professional cultures, with professional teams, you can really get stuck in the performance and result-based mindset where all you care about is personal performance. Like you said, when you have two liberos on a team or when you have two officers on a team, you're just competing against that guy to play. Whereas it's probably more destructive to compete against your team rather than to compete against the other team. <laughs> so then finding this joy, finding this, this way of enjoying the moment and being happy for your teammates. I know that at Trinity, we also talked about when someone's not playing their best that day, you should be joyful and happy for the other teammate that gets the chance to go in and you should hope that they can can pull up their socks and, and fix kind of what you weren't able to achieve out there. So I think just this, this idea of joy has really stuck with me and for five years at Lunarburg, we've talked about that every year as well. So I, I thank Ben for being a coach that was do this, this feeling and this mindset of joy with his teams at Trinity. It's so cool to hear you talk about this, but obviously easier said than done in most cases. So I'm curious, how did you progress through this? And to use your example, like if, if I'm in the tank that day and I get subbed off, like how do you rebound and, and start having joy for that guy? Like, I'm, I'm sure it doesn't happen right away, but what are some little tricks that you've learned maybe to be in a support role when it's necessary, when, when you're not getting it done? Like, is there any advice you could give to maybe a coach or a younger athlete listening? Because uh, I think it, when we're out of the moment, we can all nod our head and say, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But when you're in the heat of the moment, man, that that's really tough, right? Yeah, no, it's super tough. And I'd be, I'd be a hypocrite to tell you I have lots of advice because for five years I've been the ultimate barrow at Lunarburg. So I haven't been told, um, <laughs> but I, I would say it's just it's just sometimes amazing to look at the like the the top performers and how they act on the court and off the court. But one picture, one example that comes to mind was this past Olympics. Bruno from uh, Brazil was pulled in the semifinal game, and I've never seen such a great example of supporting your other teammates when things aren't going well for yourself as with what Bruno did there he was I think the backup setter's name is Fernando the other little setter from Brazil he was talking to him in timeouts and supporting him and cheering on his other teammates and I think that's so huge when the leader of a team isn't giving up when he's off the floor or the leader of the team is supporting the guy that goes in for him and I mean I would just say that when you have the desire to win or if you have the desire to, to compete and to, to give your all, it's, it's kind of based on the team. So if you want to do well for your team, if you're not doing well that day, you should welcome the other teammates like gladly on the floor. I mean, yeah, like you said, in the heat of the moment, it's tough. And when you're fighting for contracts and all these different things, that's, that's huge. But I would say it's noticeable for coaches and for your teammates, when you're a supportive teammate, you make a difference on the team. Even if you're not always on the floor, whether it's in practice, whether it's on road trips, whether it's games, if you can be supportive of your fellow, I think that makes a huge difference for how you're how you're seen as a teammate, but also how you're seen as a player for the coaches. Yeah, that's so awesome, man. Thanks for sharing that. So uh with Lunenberg, obviously, we've talked about it on the show a couple of times. It seems like Trinity has a pipeline there that uh, you probably deserve a lot of credit there for being there for five seasons. But uh, I think if we traced it back far enough, was Marshall there before you? Or who, who kind of got you in Lunenberg and who maybe deserves the most credit for the Trinity hookup in your mind? 
Yeah, so the very first Trinity players in, in Luna Marshall and Nick Del Bianco. That was Nick going straight out of out of university to Lunaburg and Steve straight to Poland. Played one season there for Vital Heinen, who went on to be the Friedrichshafen head coach. So I think that was a little bit of there. Stefan um, was the assistant coach for Vital with the German national team. And I believe that Vital was hyping up Steve. So Stefan luckily was able to have uh, Steve come to Lunaburg for one season. And funny story, like I said before, to get an agent going into FTC, I didn't get an agent leaving FTC either. Um, I think my uh, my credit should go towards Nick's girlfriend because rumor has it that he, she was babysitting Stefan's kid one one evening while he was at training in his job. And um, when Stefan came home from practice, he uh, asked Taylor about arrows. And she mentioned my name, and Stefan said, oh, I've never heard of him. And then Taylor said, yeah, search him up. He's a great guy. And then a couple weeks, so I think that without Taylor mentioning my name while babysitting, I would never have come to Lunenburg. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. That's so cool to hear. Um, and I think you mentioned you and Slater arrived at the same time, but do you get a kick out of kind of being a vet and being like a friendly face to, I think Pierce has played there, Blake has played there, uh, Adam Schreimer has been there. Like it, it seems like you're always being joined by a Trinity guy or if it's not a Trinity guy, sometimes there's fellow Canadians like Ray Zito and some other guys. So uh, do you kind of take it upon yourself to show guys uh, what the club's about, where the good places to eat are, like all the little things that go into being a professional in that city? Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, so I played with, Later in my first season, and then Schreimer joined me in my season with Slater as well. And then third season, Blake came, Slater, and um, Adam left. And then fourth season, um, I hope I'm not forgetting who was here. I think there was no Trinity guys that season with me. Um, I think that's true. And then this year, uh, Pierce is here. But I, I for sure would call myself a Lunaburg expert, especially with the the new foreigner guys, where to eat, where to go get a nice haircut, where to get good coffee. There's a few great coffee experts. I definitely like to show those guys those places. And yeah, I mean, I've been here for five years and Nick, Nick went into my Google Maps right before I came to uh, Lunaburg and favorited a few locations. So I'm just paying it forward now to the other guys. Yeah, that's so cool. And I'm curious with your progression through the club, um, how do you continue to stay motivated? And the reason I bring it up is your position is pretty specialized. Like there's only so many balls you can pass. There's only so many balls you can dig, maybe some secondary setting. So how do you fire up and still feel like you're getting better and still progressing? Because uh, being a libero is a tough contract to get. And like you said, like you've, you've been the only libero and you don't get yanked very often. So uh, how do you feel like you're still progressing versus just kind of getting into a routine and thinking that, oh, I'm established, like my spot's safe versus pushing and progressing and trying to be better every day? Yeah, I mean, I think I've gone through a progression, especially in serve receive since being in Lunenburg when I got here. Honestly, probably the serving target for most teams. Guys close served me a lot and didn't serve as well, maybe a little bit less. And through the years, I actually decided that the other teams are starting to avoid. So in that regard, I say I, I was pretty proud with the progression I've been able to make. In and um, now, 
the goal is to be able to just get more balls, to free up the attackers, to not have to receive so much, especially with other teams that are thick or trying to lim- limit the approach for the outside hitters going to four. So now my goal is obviously to keep my quality, but try and take as much court as I can. So the libero for hashing is a, is a good example for this. His coach uh, has told the team that basically – as long as the libero's passing numbers are staying higher than the outside hitters, he's going to try and take as much as And as soon as it gets too much and his numbers start going down, then he'll decrease the amount of court he takes. And I've tried to see yeah, do that as well. I mean, he's amazing. He played in Poland, played for the national team, played in some Olympic qualifiers. So that guy's libero. And I've tried to do that. So trying to motivate yourself with, with experts, with guys that are better better than you, especially in your other leagues, and having that picture in your mind and trying to resemble that, I say that's one way I try to I try to keep motivated and not get stagnant out there. And then another way is also just yeah, trying to keep the quality and practice as as high as possible. I start getting lazy out there and receive numbers go down and dig numbers just go down, then all of a sudden we're not training at a high level. So then it's tough to go into a game against Berlin where they're going to impose their will and play at such a high level. And if you're not training at a high level, then it's really tough to play against that as well. So kind of take it upon myself to keep perception as, as high and as good a quality as possible and set well, playing defense, covering, communicating. So it's, it's all in there and it's all involved in the everyday life of Libero. And how have you found a way to kind of earn trust with the outsides? Because I think a lot of people would say, yeah, outside just want to swing out and hit. So for you to squeeze them out, it's not a big deal. But the other thing is you're dealing with professionals and maybe they feel like they can help the team and they identify as a good passer. So in the heat of the moment, if you want to like pinch a seam or push a guy out, like do you have free reign to do that and you feel like you have the trust? Or, or how do you kind of build that with your outsides to say, hey, like I'm going to take half the court here, so you need to get out of my way. Like how do you have those short but quick conversations when you're in the battle like against a certain server or against a certain team yeah it definitely starts in training i mean and we, we practice some some formations maybe a free release from the bic or maybe a free release from position four maybe the opposite can come against the slow serve or maybe we go four passers and maybe one guy can slide out at the last second so obviously you got to train these these um these techniques first so that in a game you actually have some some trust that it works and i think for me yeah stefan and i have a good agreement that i'm kind of the general out there in even in and in defense so if i see something and if we have a conversation with guys about it and if they can be on board then we can do it and i also have to keep a keep like my eyes above the water at times last game one of our outsides was passing nails so then even though we had the possibility of taking him out to get a free release he told me he was passing and then going into his pack that i told him all right we're not going to pinch you out i'll take a little bit less for it even though they're obviously targeting you your numbers are high enough stay with it so i think yeah not being selfish and just feeling like oh i'm the libero i need to pass all the balls but being smart with how it's helping the team and how it's um going to free up attackers or keep the quality high I think you got to have a little bit of of knowledge there too so um it's sometimes Stefan will call a timeout if he sees an idea or if he sees something that we 
team than we can do in defense. So sometimes I don't have to be the one to say it, but sometimes, yeah, I just got to say it. And obviously, like you said, some pro, some pro outsides are really passionate about being a, a receiver and an attacker. So maybe they're going to get a little bit emotional, but it's obviously just you got to take the message and, and ignore the tone when they're, when they're not liking it. So yeah, that's, uh, that's how I would do that. Nice. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. And I'm curious what goes into your prep as libero, because to me, a world-class server should be able to target several zones along the court. But do you find that international players do have a tendency or maybe a favorite serve that you can alert for? Or, or how are you game planning and prepping knowing that, okay, they like to get behind the setter, so they're going to serve a lot of balls to one. That means I'm going to get a lot of volume or they want to take out the front or left side to four. Like, are, are there tendencies going into a game that you can be pretty confident in or because serving is such a a flexible skill that you think players can adjust on the fly if they need to? I would say everyone has their strong serve. So you definitely can identify that someone made might have a really great serve five or to the five sideline. But I would say at this level, for sure, guys can hit all zones. But at a certain point, it, it makes more sense to serve the same serve to try and, yeah, maybe disturb the rhythm of an outside or maybe to try and limit his approval. I would say that it's not so common for guys to just like spray the whole court all the time because if you're having success on a I change the serve. So going into games, I would say we game plan and watch the serves of the other team, especially for the last game and maybe the last in particular and see and maybe we can locate a hot zone. And I would say for like yeah, the majority of the guys, I don't know if I have a definitely more than um, 50, 60% of the guys in the league have a serve that they stick to and they don't vary from it. So maybe maybe that's because this is Germany and it's not Italy. Maybe in Italy you're going to have guys just going all over the court because they don't care who's in the position that they're serving at. Like a guy like going to bomb balls and he knows he's going to beat 90% of the passers. <laughs> um, so definitely going into games involved, yeah, watching the serves of the opponent and yeah, trying to see if I can find a rhythm, find a routine, find something that they're looking for. Obviously, certain teams in the league have weaker passers, so that just makes that easy to, to locate. But then you also have to think and apply to your own team and see what the servers might want to do against against you. Right, right. And you've mentioned a few times like uh, the numbers on service teams. So is that something... Every time you go back to the bench or in a timeout, like, is there a coach in charge of the serve receive numbers, or is that something that the, this stage of your career, with the experience you have, that you can kind of just feel when the left side's in rhythm, or when you need to kind of help them out a little bit? Like, is this something that's actually charted uh, every single rep, or do you have a feel for it? Um, it's charted for sure. Our statistician or behind the court, depending on how many assistant coaches we have at the match, and. If I want to get any stat during the game, obviously it's going to be perfectly 100% because live statting is unbelievably difficult, but he's our statistician is really solid. So I would trust them. Yeah, I would trust it. And uh, to answer your question, I would say like last game, that was a gut feeling. I just had the feeling that he was dialed and receiving really well, especially against particular servers where he might be um yeah exploited to take him out of the dick but uh for this for for Lunaberg we have a statistician that's scouting every touch so receive numbers are going to be 
live and you can get those scouting the attack lines of the opponent. So there's lots of info you can get on the bench during the game. And this might go back to your earlier comment about uh, kind of taking the message and ignoring the tone, but I'm curious, how do you kind of have a voice and be a leader when the team's playing defense? And the reason I bring that up is it makes sense for the libero to kind of comment on the blocking because you have the best view and obviously your position lineup depends on it. But to me, man, blocking is a really hard skill and you could do everything right and not get the result. So how have you found a way to communicate with the front row players without kind of just barking at them or telling them to be faster or close the block or don't reach or do whatever they got to do, right? Like how have you found a way to communicate tactically without just getting mm-hmm. on them? Well, starting at the start of the thing, um, in preseason with Lunenburg, we have goals and kind of like system identities that we want to play with. And um, that evolves around our block being stable. And I wouldn't necessarily comment to guys about like maybe reads. That's up to them and that's up to their eyes. But if I see something with them reaching, I might talk with them and just be like, hey, like, are you seeing something or are you wide enough like just something really quick and just saying like hey when you have still hands it's so much easier to play defense around you because then at least you can you know that the block is going to be there and maybe the block's too far inside and you know that but at least you can have position yourself defensively behind it but when you see the block sniffing last second he's reaching in and the cross-court shot all of a sudden ricochets line as a defender that's pretty pretty hard to <laughs> around so i try to be yeah, concise, short with my with my feedback during games with blockers, and just keep it revolving around our our identity goals, and just say like, hey guys, like we want to have basically like goalposts up there as blocks, and try to be possible one on one's a little bit of a different story with reaching and things like that, but especially when you have a two or three man block, you want to just be stable and straight. So if they're not, I definitely have the right to tell them because that's kind of playing into our team identity. And one cool thing about uh, Ben Joe, who you played for at Trinity, uh, he's done a few presentations, and I got a kick out of one he did at, uh, with Volleyball Canada talking about, you know, attackers versus diggers, the attacker is always going to have the advantage. Like, there's certain guys who can just blow up a digger, and they they just, nine out of ten times, it's going to work. So, knowing that, and but still being a competitive guy, is there certain things a libero can do to kind of funnel or know where the ball is going to be? Or does it really come down to the blocker has to take away kind of the power alley of the hitter and you have to fill in and get digs when you can? Because uh, I'm not trying to water down your position. Obviously, digs are super important. But uh, I completely agree with Benjo where the attacker has the advantage of it's a clear lane. Like it's really tough to get a dig against some of the world class guys you're playing against. But how do you kind of flip the odds and try to put yourself in the best situation? Yeah, I mean, you got to, first of all, identify the attacker that you're playing against. So game planning also needs to include, um, yeah, the attacker has his strengths. And I would say just in general, digging line is a lot harder than digging cross. And for us, fortunately, with Lunarburg, pretty nice defenders um, on our on our cross-court positions. So that makes it a lot easier to take line more. I mean, when you're playing with a big, clumsy opposite and you want to, make the attacker hit cross, that's obviously going to be a different story. But for us, we don't have to worry about that. <laughs> but I would say, A, it goes into, it's really about game planning the attacker. So knowing when he's in certain situations where he's likely going to hit the ball, obviously it's not going to be 100%, but at least you can play the odds. And then for sure, I would say as a blocker, you need power alley. You need to be able to take away the harder shot because everyone's going to have a little bit of a harder and a weaker shot. And if the block can take away the harder shot, 
get good slowdowns where they swing high. And if you can dig the less hard, usually pretty still hard, but um, with other shots, then that's where you're going to have a, a better chance of success. I think when you just, yeah, leave line when you know he's a great hitter, that's, that's hard. That's really tough to make those digs. Even if you're a world-class defender, there's still going to be, like Ben said, the advantage for the attacker. And one thing we haven't really taken a deep dive into the show, but I'm curious to get your thoughts, is just the value of secondary setting. And I think when the liberos kind of really got advanced, it was maybe kind of an up-and-down set that landed in the hitting zone, like a little bit off and a little bit inside to give the hitter a chance. But as it's kind of progressed and evolved and you've maybe gotten more confident in your skills, is there an audible call at your level? Does does every outside have a unique set? Or are you really just trying to give them the best chance, like I said, a little bit inside and a little bit off the net? Like, how sophisticated is the secondary setting? Because it is a popular tactic to try to take out the setter when you can't get, like, a clear kill and they want to just kind of concede the the continue and play on. So with your role in that, how, how tactical are you getting with where you can put the ball as a setter? Yeah, I mean, first, I think secondary or high ball setting is absolutely, like, critical. You need to train that more. And I think that for our team this year, that's like maybe one of our most trained skills because there's so often matches where the setter is going to make a dig, but it's still going to be impossible for me to make a great set on it. So maybe our other position, like back in, uh, left side or front row middle needs to make a high ball set. So just first, I think that it's super important to train that skill well. And for me, since I've started playing libero, Settings probably been my best skill. I remember filling out the questionnaire for the national team where it was talking about your worst skill, and maybe it wasn't the smartest idea, but I often wrote that setting was my best skill and defense was my worst skill, which is probably pretty <laughs> ironic to write that on their on their on their uh, uh, questionnaire. Um, but yeah, I definitely have a lot of confidence in my um, since I've been in Lunarburg, Stefan's kind of designated me as the second setter in our old gym, the Gellison Hollow, really low ceiling gym. So any dig that was at the back third or even back half of the court, I was often because you just can't aim high. You just can't dig high in these gyms. Now A playing with Joe Worsley and B playing in the new arena, I set yeah significantly less because guys are digging high and off the net and Joe's also just extremely fast and has reading skills. Um, but in the past, I was actually setting like the same calls as our setter. So for Lunarburg, we have like go and high are our set calls. And even if it was me setting, they would use the same and sometimes the odd gap to the myth. So I definitely, yeah, follow suit with the setters with the same, with the same lingo for setting. And is that something that happens in training as well, just the relationship with the setter? Because you mentioned you're playing with a guy this year who wants to get to every ball is very quick, where is there certain moments in a game where they're going to have to put up a high ball anyway, so it might be better for you to take over in those situations? Like, how often does that happen at your level where the dig's way off the net and like it's just better for you to give a hittable ball versus them kind of being way off balance and having to sprint to some of these digs? Yeah, that comes training at the start of the year. I was too aggressive, and Joe and I were running into each other a couple times, and it's completely understandable with how fast and how good he is at reading. So um, definitely need to like learn about each other. Um, but yeah, I think there is a time and a place where I will make the same 
quality set as the setter. I think that that's I think that's realistic. So I think there needs to be the understanding of the setter and also the confidence to call the ball sometimes, especially when the setter is going to bump set. But since I'm standing deep in the court, I might be able to set with my hands. I think you're always, I think 99% of the time, going to make a better set with your hands than you are with your arms. So I think that that's a reciprocal relationship between, for example, Joe. There will be times that he's going to say like, yeah, hey, after the point, good that you took that ball, thanks, or hey, great set. And I think that reinforces that relationship rather that I took the ball out of his hands. I think there's going to be times where... Each, oh, hi, Lily. Um, <laughs> there's going to be times where I'm going to make the same quality set as as the setter. So I think that, like I said, it goes two, goes two ways. Nice, nice. And I can edit this out if it's too personal, but I am curious to get your perspective of how... Uh, you've kind of approached the contract situation because uh, foreign contracts are definitely difficult to get. And I think most clubs would lean towards, you know, spending the foreigner contracts on point scores, right? Like let's get a right side or an outside, or maybe a setter has more influence on scoring points in some coaches' minds than maybe a libero. So with you at Lunenburg, have you been going one year at a time? Have you been able to sign like longer term deals? Like how have you built this relationship that you've been there for five years? Um, yeah, I signed a two-year contract from the get-go, ended with two more, and then ever since then, I've been going year by year, obviously, staying in good connection with Stefan. I think I had a pretty great connection with, with Ben at Trinity, but I would say I've never had a, a better connection with a coach than I have with Stefan, and he and I are very open. Um, I'm, I'm actually the captain on the team this year, and last year I was co-captain, so we've had the opportunity to even... Um, in our relationship and talk about so many things and he's been open with me about the potential of me transitioning from a libero into a coach in the future and when it's right for that to happen and whether he'll start pursuing to, uh, to go after other liberos soon or later so I think the transparency that we can have with each other talking about the future and him also supporting me with having a daughter and being married and Having other priorities, not just volleyball, I think that's something special and a big reason why I've stayed in Lunenburg so long. Yeah, that's so cool. And I'd like to get your perspective because we talked to Ryan Slater about this as well. Like, are you able to flip the switch from dad to professional athlete pretty quickly? Because it can be distracting, right? Like the, the lifestyle definitely changes versus I imagine a lot of your teammates don't have kids. I don't know if that's fair to say, but how have you dealt with like just the extra responsibilities of having to be a dad and a pro player and, and kind of sometimes you got to go to the gym and maybe there's chaos going on at home, but you got to go be a professional athlete, right? Yeah, no, for sure. I, I uh, yeah, I am right now on our team, the only player with a kid, and um, we actually have quite a few young guys on the team. So it's an interesting mix this year with guys that are single and young, and then guys like me that are married and and have other things going on at home. So it's an interesting mix when I'm going to training. For example, last week my daughter actually like dislocated her elbow. Um, playing with me and my wife and she was crying and going crazy and I told my wife like hey, I, I have to go now and it's a completely like unrelated stress from volleyball but it's definitely there and Stefan with knowing that I'm a father and I told him like hey my, my wife and daughter are going to be going to the hospital I'm going to keep my phone on ring on this anything crazy and he said yeah no problem I understand so I think it goes back to what I said last question as well with my relationship with Stefan. 
open with him about things that are going on at home with my daughter and with my wife. And um, I would say I've learned how to turn the switch on. It's really difficult, especially um, especially when Lily was just born or even before she was born. I would bring my phone in every day because if the if my wife's water broke while I was at training, I was leaving. I told him that. And there were even moments where I told him the possibility in this away trip and we had set up some some plan B's for me to go back early to get to the hospital to be with my wife and I think it's really special that I can be able to do that in Lunenburg because I don't know if that's the case with every club in pro volleyball yeah definitely definitely and just one more question about the libero thing I'd be curious to get your perspective of is there still an impression overseas that teams think they can transfer an outside hitter uh, to Libero or they can find a local guy to get the job done? Because uh, you've obviously made a strong showing and a strong career being a Libero, but we joked uh, the other week on the show that Blair's fended off a lot of guys on the national team where it doesn't seem like uh, older guys stick around too much at the Libero position, whether... Uh, uh, like I think Jordan Pereira was technically our second libero at BNL this year, meaning like guys like Jeremy Davies and Dre, uh, Brian Duquette. Like it's just not that uh, beneficial to be a libero, kind of waiting for the spot to open up sometimes. So I'm curious, what is the mood overseas, or why is it so hard for Canadians to get libero contracts sometimes? Yeah, I don't know. It's interesting because, like I told you before, I think I kind of getting this contract. So I think slowly but surely more liberos are gonna get contracts. I really hope that next year guys like Jordan Pereira will be able to cover season play and and really thrive. Um yeah, I, I like 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 you said earlier, teams have this have this mindset that they want to spend their money on the foreigners that are gonna bring in the points. And I think that's a little bit of a flawed view because I think Libero obviously biased being one myself, but I think it's a really important position and don't get me wrong, I think an opposite or an outside hitter is definitely more valuable, but there is value in having a solid libero, especially someone that brings the intangibles of like communication and and bringing in a solid culture and working hard and yeah, just being kind of like this indestructible player that can train, grind day in, day out. Um, so I, I really don't know why. I mean, with the national team, I don't know if I should say this, but like I think that they had liberos that they didn't necessarily give the chance to really play at the highest level. Obviously, Canada always has to grind to qualify for World Championships, to qualify for VNL or however they need to go about that. But guys like Ryan Duquette, Jordan Orr, um, Jeremy Davies, these guys didn't really get the chance at the highest level where you look at the United States and you have these younger liberos that are playing in these bigger tournaments. So we'll team does with the national team in the in the years to come but i think that that's something important to give these guys the 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 screen time if you will or the in the actual battle to to show rather than just training and waiting and training and waiting and training and waiting so i would say that canada could help their liberos with in the future is giving them the chance to play i think Pereira did get to play in the vnl but not much Right, right. Well, man, th this has been awesome. I, I want to thank you so much for all that you've shared and making the time zone work and making our internet connection work here because it has gone in and out. So thanks for your patience with that. But uh, but before we let you go, one thing we've built into a tradition on this show is just to share a funny or unique story. So obviously we've heard about your career, your success at the university level, and obviously your success as a professional. But man, something odd or funny must have happened along the way that hopefully you could share to give us a laugh before we call this one. 
Yeah, so this season we had the chance to play in the CEV Cup against the Serbian team. Um, a fellow sports athlete was actually on that team from Guelph. I'm, I'm sorry, but I really can't remember how to say his name, but it's definitely a cool name. Um, Serbian Guelph. Um, <laughs> Uh, we were there driving to and from the gym um, in the sketchiest bus I've ever, ever been in. And on the way from the hotel to the airport at the end of the, our time in Serbia, the left on the bus actually fell off. And he's pulled over to the side of the road, kind of contemplated his options. And then he just ripped the rear in the bus and held it out the window for the remainder of the 30-minute drive to the airport. So that was one of the most, um, I guess, odd experiences I've had playing in Lüneburg so far. <laughs> <laughs> Man, what is it with pro clubs and buses sometimes? Uh, Jeremy Davies shared one when he was in Finland that the wipers didn't work on his bus. So the guy tied a, a rope to the wiper and was manually pulling it to get them home one night. So it just seems like some of these clubs are, are finding unique ways to get it done. Like keep the money on the court and we'll figure out how to do travel after that. <laughs> Man, it's sad. It's sad because spending time on the bus, especially for us in Lunenburg, is just is key. You need to have a comfy bus. You need to have a mattress. You need to have entertainment. And when the bus is nice, it actually makes the experience so much nicer. So I, I feel very sorry for clubs that don't have a nice bus. <laughs> actually, that reminds me. Sorry to keep you with one more question, but just as an onlooker, like with Lunenburg, is there a built-in rivalry a little bit with Berlin? Because as a casual fan, it just seems like they're kind of like the Yankees of the league and they're going to have some funding and they might have uh, more international players or they might have a, a bigger facility to play in. Like, is there a little bit of sense now that you've been with the same club for so long that uh, your supporters and, and uh, your fans kind of feel like there's a rivalry and you guys fire up for Berlin or any other teams in your league? Oh, man. When I got to Lüneburg, obviously, we were still playing in the small Gellisenhalle, and I think uh, the year um, Lüneburg had beat Berlin in the, in the Gellisenhalle, I think, three times. And then in my first two seasons, we actually had the, the luck of beating Berlin a couple more times. Um, so I think that it was kind of like a, a Berlin that grew over the years, and now Berlin so good that it doesn't really matter i wouldn't say they have a rivalry with anybody anymore <laughs> um but yeah there was definitely this little hey berlin just hated our gym maybe our fans just loved how much they hated our gym but there was this feeling at the start of my career that playing was just this this spectacle and the fans loved it and yeah in my second year we actually beat berlin in the cup semifinals and the crowd went nuts when that happened and um, we're in the cup final again this year and there's a very high possibility we play against Berlin and I think that would, that would be really fun once again. <laughs> well, man, this has been great. Like I mentioned at the start of the show, your, your name's come up a few times, always with some good stories and smiles, but it was good to get your perspective and hear everything that you've accomplished. So thanks for everything that you shared today and best of luck with uh, you know your future career, being a dad and everything else you've got going on. Yeah, thanks, Josh. Appreciate you having me on here and yeah, it's been great. Thanks so much.